those of you who know me, you know that I'm a pastor, right? And my pastor, my, my, my job, my role as a pastor puts me in front of a lot of different types of people. And I used to not like people very much. I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I used to be a very private, very introverted person. And the Lord just changed my heart over the years, and he made me a pastor. I mean, I, I find that to be very humorous. But he made me a pastor. And be, my, my life as a pastor puts me in front of a lot of different people. And one of the things about being in front of a lot of different people, particularly when they learn that you're a pastor, is they tend to do one of two things. They learn that you're a pastor, and they really clam up. They don't say anything, or they say something that they think you might want to hear, something really churchy or something that just sort of pushes you along. Or they lay on the proverbial couch, and they tell you everything. They tell you their whole life story, all their issues, all their dirt, which I, I just I don't mind that much. I've been told also that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fairly disarming uh, pastor and that I don't necessarily come off as a pastor, and I find that to be very refresh, refreshing. Um, I, in fact, I went to a church, and one of the deacons came up to me, and he said, so you're a pastor, huh? I said, yeah. He said, you don't look like a pastor. <laughs> I thought to myself, I was kind of insulted, but I thought to myself, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm on the right track here. But I, I'm told that I'm very uh, disarming. So I talk to a lot of people, and people tell me a lot of their story, and what I find... Person after person, story after story, is that everybody is on a path to someplace. Everybody is a path on a path to someplace. Everybody's traveling towards something. Some things are noble, some things are, you know, dishonorable, but we're all on a path to someplace. Some people have been on a path for a very long time, they're itching to get off that path, while others are just cruising along. They're on their path to someplace. But most of the people I've discovered are not on a path toward Jesus. They're not uh, actively pursuing a life toward Jesus. They're pursuing something. That road is going to terminate someplace. And some people would tell you through their stories, they might not tell you directly, but they're pursuing money. They're pursuing wealth. They're pursuing a comfortable lifestyle. Some people are pursuing fame, whatever being famous looks like in their particular context. Some are pursuing just being the biggest stud or the biggest beauty that they can be. I mean, it's all about vanity. It's all about their looks, their identities wrapped up in that. Some pursue athletics. Some pursue a career, just being very successful in their career. Many of these things are noble, but few people in this world, few people are really on a path toward Jesus. And when I look back over my Christian upbringing, I always thought that I was on the path toward Jesus. But as I look more soberly at my life and look more soberly at the path that I was on, I really realized that I was just, I really valued being a good guy. I really valued being a good person. For the better part of my life, I was on a path to being a good guy. Now, being a good guy is not wrong. It's not wrong. But if that's your life's goal in place of pursuing Jesus and life in him, it's a meaningless pursuit. So I used to pat myself on the back. The more I studied the scriptures, I realized I was on a road to nowhere, just like many of the other people that I meet. And oftentimes I would look like, back on my life and I go, man, I'm sure glad that I found Jesus, as if somehow he was lost. And when I opened the scriptures, I discovered that I'm the one that's lost. And so all of my pride about me being a Christian, all of my pride and my arrogance and my haughtiness that comes from me making the right decision, choosing the right path, choosing God above all the options, move completely as blown out when I discover 
that Jesus actually found me. He actually pursued me. I have the privilege this morning of beginning a new sermon series that I'm simply calling Jesus Meets Us Where We Are. Because I spoke about us all being on a path. And most of us, in fact, all of us, was on a path to someplace other than Jesus. And when we ask ourselves how we ended up in the kingdom, in the family of Jesus, the simple answer is that Jesus came, he encountered us, he found us, and he rearranged our priorities. He put in some new coordinates on the GPS and pointed us straight towards Jesus. We're all on the path somewhere. We're all looking for something. And then we meet Jesus. So Jesus finds us. And the interesting thing is that Jesus met us right where we are, right where we were. Some of you can close your eyes and you can think back to where you were when the Lord found you. You can think about what you were up to, what you were pursuing, what you were filling your life with, what you were spending your human and financial resources on when the Lord encountered you. Jesus meets us where we are. And I think it's my job to to personally dispel a few misconceptions that Christians tend to have, and unchurched people tend to have also, which keeps them away from church, and that is that i got to really clean myself up before I go to church. I've had several people tell me, Pastor, you don't want me to come to church. When I come to church, the walls are going to cave in. The place is going to catch on fire. I'm like, dude, I, I know our congregation. If it's not on fire by now, you can come. You, is he talking about me? You know who you are. No, we got this idea. We got to clean ourselves up. We got to get our act together before we can be acceptable to the Lord. That's what I was going to say, man, I'm really, I need to take a bath before I take this shower. I don't want to get the shower dirty. I mean, it's as, as silly as that. The other misconception is that salvation is for people who are smart enough to have made the right decision. People who are smart enough, they're with it enough to have made the right decision. And friends, that is a myth. There's no truth in that whatsoever. The truth is that Jesus, while we were yet in our sin, he came, he found us. He came and he rescued us. There's three bold statements that Jesus makes in the the Gospels that really helps to inform my thinking as it relates to salvation. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. In other words, Jesus says, I'm it. The kingdom of God that you want to enter in, that eternal life that you want to enter into, all the beauty and bounty of the kingdom. Listen, I am the door. I am the gate. If you want to access the Father, if you want to access eternal life, I am the guy that you come through. Jesus says also, in John chapter 6, verse 43, for no, one can come to, I'm sorry, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And at that last day, I will raise them up. So Jesus says, listen, before I even come to you, before you even get access to me, God the Father has to draw you to me. Then he concludes in Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And the little bit of pride that I had left about my ability to make the right decision completely goes out the window when I hear Jesus say, that listen, I couldn't even come to the Father. I couldn't even approach Jesus unless God's Spirit first drew me in. When I'm praying for people who are lost, I pray, Lord, would you just draw them by your Spirit? I know that's the only way they will have sense enough to come to you. Then when I hear Jesus says, my job, I'm on this earth 
to seek and to save the lost. I don't think you've got to come to Jesus, and we've heard that commentary, but listen, Jesus comes and he seeks after you. This is something he's pursuing you. He's, he's looking after you. Ever look for something that was lost? You tore someplace up until you found it. Jesus came to seek. Now, it would be a shame if he just stopped at that seek part, right? But he rescues us. He doesn't only just seek us out, but he saves those who are lost. And that should suck all the pride and arrogance. You shouldn't be able to look your nose down on anybody because you were first lost and the Savior came and found you. You were first destitute and Jesus came to rescue you. And it's astounding to me that in the gospel, Jesus meets such a wide range of people. If you ever read through the gospels, you'll find that Jesus meets some of everybody. And most of the people that he meets were absolutely jacked up. Tax collectors, soldiers, demon-possessed people, religious, self-righteous people, fishermen, sick people. He meets some of everything, but he seems to have the same thing for all of them, the message of hope in the kingdom of God. Some accepted him, others didn't, but the key is that Jesus met them where they were. Jesus never spoke down to anybody. He shot straight with them, as we'll talk about later, but he never spoke down to anybody. He met them exactly where they were. And I didn't find that Jesus was trying to be overly convincing or cunning or sharp. He simply explained to them that the kingdom was theirs if they were interested. And for the next few weeks, as we work our way through this series that we've called Jesus Meets Us Where We Are, we'll look at Jesus' various encounters with different people. And all of us in the room, as we work through these, uh, this series, will be able to identify with one or more of those encounters. And these encounters will give us a fresh look at what we're supposed to do as Jesus' hands and feet on this earth. And it will help us especially understand the value uh, that, uh, that, that Jesus first sought us, that he rescued us from our sin. This morning, we're going to look at the famous story about the woman at the well. The woman at the well. And if you've read this story, if you've heard this story, you know the woman at the well is uh, a, a caricature of a lost person, of a sinner. Now, we're all sinners because we're all broken, we're all sinful, we're all selfish, and we have to constantly get ourselves square with the Lord again because we all sin. But when I say sinner in this particular uh, category, I mean a lost person, somebody who's far from God, somebody who's far from the faith, somebody who's, 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 who's estranged or distant from God. That's what I mean when I say sinner. Jesus encounters a bona fide sinner. And we'll look at this uh, story at the woman at the well to help illustrate how Jesus meets the sinner where they were. Now, we need to know that we all were once sinners. We all were once lost. So we need not, you know, distance ourselves from this story. But we're also, like I said, Jesus' hands and feet, and we're called to go and to get the lost. So this is, has a special significance to all of us. We're going to be looking at John chapter 4 this morning. There are Bibles on the edges of the rows. Also, um, the scriptures will be projected on the screens there for you to follow along. John chapter 4, we're looking at the story of the woman at the well. Before I get into it this morning, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you found us, that you rescued us, that you don't leave us just floundering about, just wandering aimlessly through the dark, but you encounter us, you meet us exactly where we are. You meet us exactly in the messes that we're stuck in, the fixes that we've gotten ourselves in, Lord, but you don't leave us there. 
you rescue us. And Lord, would you just open the scriptures to us this morning? Would you, Lord, would you just move me out of the way? Would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak that they might enlighten and encourage this morning? We ask your blessing on this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John chapter 4, we're starting at verse 1. This is, a, this is a rather lengthy passage. I have to read quite a bit in order to uh, talk about what I want to talk about this morning, so bear with me. John chapter 4, I'll start at verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when, I, when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while the Jews know all about him, for salvation comes to the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the villages to see him. So I know that's a long passage, and there's a lot of things in there. But we open this passage and we see Jesus, he stirred up trouble again. The religious people were after him again. He had, he had upset them again. And Jesus, not wanting to deal with it, he said, listen, I'm going to leave town for a little while. So Jesus left Judea and he headed to Galilee. And the shortest route to Galilee was through a city, through, through a place called Samaria. And as he was in Samaria, he encountered this interesting woman. 
this interesting woman, this famous woman, or this infamous woman, depending on how you look at it. And with this story, I want to illustrate how Jesus meets us, the sinner, exactly where we are. Jesus does a couple of things as he meets this woman where she is, as he meets us where we are. And the first thing that I noticed that Jesus does is Jesus engages an untouchable. Jesus engages an untouchable. Aren't you glad that Jesus engages the untouchables? Verse 4 says he had to go through Samaria on the way. This was a divine encounter. Eventually he came to Samaria, the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his sons. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So even this woman was surprised that Jesus even uh, spoke to her. Surprised to be engaged by Jesus. And from what Jesus said, this woman already had three things working against her, three things contributing to her untouchableness, if I can make up a word on the spot. The first thing was that she was a Samaritan. If you study scripture, you know that the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And Samaritans despised Jews. I mean, it was a very mutual hatred. Jews saw the Samaritan as being half-breed, uh, polytheistic people who worshipped other gods, who married outside of the, the Jewish race, and they, was, they, were, they were despicable. They were disgusting to Jewish people. So Jesus, being a Jewish man, encounters this Samaritan. This Samaritan here, has, has, that's her first strike against her. The second strike is that she was a woman. And in this culture, women were, were, were second-class citizens. A, 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 a respectable man would never speak alone to a woman, be seen with a woman, conversing with a woman in this culture. That's the second thing she had against her. And the third thing she had against her was that she was an immoral woman. She was an immoral woman. And as we read the story, we understand later that we, uh, we discover in the story that she's sort of shacking up with this guy after she's had five husbands. But the other, uh, some other words in this passage give us a clue about her, her, her immoral nature. One thing we need to understand is the scripture says that she was at the well at noon. It doesn't strike you as odd because you're like, man, maybe she needed some water at noon. But it was customary for women to go to the well at, at early morning and late at night. And not only will the women go early morning and late at night, this was like a group thing. Women went to the wells together. This was a thing that they did together. So that the, the fact that this woman went to the well at noon and she went alone suggests that she was avoiding other people. She was avoiding other people. Even in this dastardly Sumerian village, this woman is a social outcast. She's a social outcast. She's got skeletons in her closet. She's avoiding people. She is a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she's an immoral woman, which makes her very, very untouchable. But when I look at the life of Jesus, when I look at the ministry of Jesus, I seem to think that Jesus seems to prefer these types of people. He hangs out with the tax collectors. He hangs out with the immoral folks. He hangs out with the untouchables, the people that nobody wants to deal with. After all, Jesus came to do what? Seek and save the lost. See, our problem as church people is that we want to hang around found people. 
Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all men, especially the lost ones, especially the outcast folks, especially the dirty folks, especially the smelly folks, especially the Z-listers, if such a thing exists. And this is good news for sinners. This is good news for people like me. I wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for Jesus' uncanny ability to seek and save lost people, to touch, to reach out to the untouchables like this woman. It's humbling for the Christian to consider that this is what Jesus' preference was. It's good news for the sinner, but it's humbling for the Christian. It's humbling to consider that I was an untouchable at one point. It's humbling to consider that God wants us to leave the safety of this church and to go and get them, and to go and get them. It's humbling. It's sobering. Because we have our list of untouchables. We talk often about our list of untouchables. And your list of untouchables depends on your culture that you're in. This woman might not have been untouchable in this culture. She might have been in the in crowd in a Western society. Your untouchable list comes from how you were socialized, how you were raised. Perhaps you were raised in an environment that taught you that anybody who, who looks lazy or is looking for a handout is, is a worthless individual, that you ought to just pass by, you ought to just dismiss them. Maybe you were raised in a religious culture or religious upbringing, and anybody who seemed to be overtly immoral or who had attachments to any sort of certain types of behaviors and customs are just untouchable. Maybe people from different racial groups, maybe people from different uh, 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 ethnic backgrounds and cultural practices. Doesn't matter. Whatever you categorize as untouchable, Jesus loves those people. Jesus reaches out to those people, and since we're his hands and we're his feet, he calls us to do the same. We used to be on somebody's untouchable list, and some of you still are. Jesus engages the untouchable. That's the very first step. And Jesus meeting us where we are, wherever we find ourselves in, wherever we find ourselves in sin, our own private sins or public sins, Jesus steps beyond that and he engages the untouchable. The second and most, uh, one of the important things that Jesus does is he identifies himself. He identifies himself. This woman says, listen, you're a Jew. Why are you interacting with me? Why are you talking to me? And Jesus proceeds to say this. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, you don't think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob. She goes on and on and on. And Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. And then she says, please, sir, give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. And I will never have to come to this well again. Give me some of this water. Now, you don't have to read very far into this story to understand that this woman has no clue who she's talking to. She has absolutely no idea that she's talking to Jesus. And as I read this story, I must admit, as I read this story over and over and others like it, this woman looks so silly to me. I mean, here she's saying all this stuff, and clearly I'm, I'm reading this from an insider's vantage point. I mean, I've read the, the book, okay? 
I know who Jesus is. But this woman seems so silly to me. The things she says, how she comes across, she's completely missing what Jesus is saying. It's almost like we're watching some hidden camera show where the audience is on the, on the inside. We're watching this prank unfold, right? We know that this, she doesn't get it. She clearly misses who Jesus is, and he has to identify himself to her. But when I read this story and others like it, and I consider this woman to be acting so foolishly, to just be speaking so flippantly, to be being so silly and dismissive of who Jesus really is, I think if I put myself in this situation or, 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 or a similar situation, would I recognize Jesus? Here we are. We have the book. We have the story. We've encountered Jesus over and over and over again, and we still don't recognize him sometimes. He still has to try two and three times to identify himself to us. And it doesn't help that Jesus is doing that sort of weird thing that he does where he's kind of talking in codes. He's saying these sort of mystical things. What? Eternal life? We're at a well. We're talking about water here. Never be thirsty again. What type of water are you talking about? Jesus does this. He kind of plays with people a little bit. I think it's a little cruel. But we marvel at his words, but this woman is confounded by what Jesus had to say. So Jesus identifies himself to her. Because what good is help? What good is hope if you don't recognize it? What good is help? And what good is hope if you don't recognize it? And some of you have sat in churches your whole life, heard sermon after sermon your whole life, Watch television preacher after television preacher your whole life. Have been given so many tracks that you could just, I mean, start your own recycling plant with these things. And we still didn't recognize Jesus. We still didn't have that aha moment that this is the Messiah. This is the answer to all my troubles. This is the answer to all my... This is what I've been in this hamster wheel just chasing my whole life, getting absolutely no... This is the answer. We've run up into Jesus our whole lives. We've never... We've missed it. We've missed it because we didn't recognize him. So a crucial step in what Jesus does when he meets us where we are is he has to identify himself to us. Not that he's hard to understand, but frankly, in this culture, he's just been presented to us as so many fake things, as so many false things, as so many counterfeit things, that when we run into the real Jesus, man, who is this guy? So Jesus identifies himself to this woman. And he not only identifies himself, he proceeds to identify what he has to offer, which is the most important talked about living water, living water, living water versus the temporary water, the temporary things that satisfy just for a moment. And Jesus is speaking directly at this woman. He's speaking directly at the issues that she has in her life as we read further in the story. This woman is clearly a serial marrier. She's clearly searching for something. And it's clear to everybody that knows her, especially to the Savior as he speaks to her, that she hadn't found it yet. It's clear that she's looking for something, and it's clear that she hasn't found it yet. And Jesus says, lady, this is your lucky day. This is your lucky day, because I offer you 
living water. He identifies himself to you. Say, hey, listen, I'm the source, and this is what you need, living water. This is my favorite thing that Jesus does as he meets us where we are. This is perhaps the most painful thing that we experience when we're on the other side of this uh, exchange with Jesus. Jesus deals with the real issue. Jesus deals with the real issue. He's talking to this woman. He encounters this untouchable woman. He identifies himself to her, right? He identifies the thing that she needs, this living water. She still doesn't quite get it. And we can't blame her because we probably wouldn't get it either. So Jesus presses in further. She's having trouble. She says, give me some of this water so I don't have to come back here again. She misses it. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, go get your husband. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. Now, Jesus, he's he's directly in touch with the Father. He's directly in touch with the Spirit. He knows, he knows. I mean, this wasn't just a flippant thing that Jesus said. This is the very first sentence of him digging into her life. He knows she doesn't have a husband, right? Go get your husband. First sentence of dealing with the real issue, Jesus told her, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And this is where Jesus completely reads this woman's mail. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Right? Now, tone is very important. Here is how I don't think Jesus said this. He didn't say it in this sort of sassy way. He didn't say it loudly as to embarrass her or to destroy her dignity. He says, listen, you're right. This is how he says it. You're right, you don't have a husband. The guy you're living with right now is not your husband. You had five husbands. Am I, am I right? Am I right about that? He deals with the real issue. And the, the real issue is not her five husbands. Right? The real issue is not the dude that she's shacked up with right now. The real issue is her sinfulness. Her real issue is her sinfulness. And by her sinfulness, I just don't mean, you know, we just get such a dirty picture when we say sin. We get such a, you know, distorted picture of sin. It's this woman's doing these dastardly things in the dark, you know, late at night, and perhaps she was. But her sinfulness is just it's simply the fact that she's disconnected from God. Her sinfulness in general is the fact that she's decided that she can do life on her own terms, according to her own plan, according to her own agenda. She can walk through this life, navigate the life that God gave her, uh, completely divorced from the plan that he set out. And Jesus, in talking about this woman's husband and prying into her life and telling her the secrets of her life, divulging to her that I know, lady, while you're at this well alone at noon, I know why the women in town won't talk to you. I know why they don't want you talking to their husbands. It's your sinfulness. It's your brokenness. It's the cavity that exists between you and the Father. And in dealing with her sinfulness, Jesus causes us to deal with our sinfulness. When Jesus encounters us, yes, there's blessings, yes, there's encouragement, but the real issue that he causes us to deal with for the rest of our lives is our brokenness and our sinfulness. Because how many of you know that we all have skeletons? We all have skeletons. The only difference between you and somebody else is that, you know, they don't necessarily have the closets that we have. 
I would say everybody has skeletons, but not everybody has a closet. That homeless man, he doesn't have the luxury. He can't hide his brokenness. He can't hide his skeletons. He doesn't have the luxury of a closet. And by closet, I mean means, wealth, the ability to explain away your situation. But how many of you know that, you know, your sins will always eventually outgrow the closets? Your sins will eventually come busting out of those closets. And here this woman stands before Jesus completely exposed, completely, figuratively undressed. The more I follow Jesus and the more I interact with him and the more I stand as a representative of his, I just, the more I want to just talk real talk with people, real straight talk. You know, I used to really enjoy the mindless arguments, you know, the verbal gymnastics, just sort of beat somebody down with words and an argument and, and a, a particular position, whether it be about politics or theology or about crickets. I didn't care. I just wanted to talk. I wanted to prove you wrong. I wanted to just, 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 just talk about something. But the deeper I get into this thing, the more I interact with people, particularly people who are on the path heading away from Jesus, the more I want to talk real, straight talk. I want to get to the heart of the matter. I want to get to the issues. I don't need the debate. I don't need the controversy. I don't need to win an argument. Maybe a little bit. Maybe once in a while. But these days, I want to talk straight talk because I don't have time for a lot of the foolishness. Frankly, the people that I'm talking to don't have a lot of time for the foolishness. And there's not a lot of people talking straight talk. A lot of people talking about they're keeping it real. I just say, that, say it like it is and saying a bunch of nothing. I don't have time for that these days. And neither did Jesus. He gets at the real issue the woman's sinfulness. He gets at the real issue despite the distraction. And there's a distraction here. Jesus starts to dig into her stuff. She gets real uncomfortable. She says, verse 19, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim that it's here at Mount Gerizim? Let's talk about worship for a second. It's real hot in the kitchen right now. And Jesus pushes past the conversational clutter. He's touched on something that's very, very, he wants to continue in that. He wants to continue to lean into the real issue. She says, you must be a prophet. You, you certainly must be a prophet. You're reading my mail here today. Then she starts to talk about places of worship, etc. Now, in the past, I've taught that this woman is getting hot in the kitchen and she wants to not deal with this area of sin. And that's, 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 that's very likely. But if we give her the benefit of the doubt, let's just say she realizes that she's standing in front of somebody who can really see, like, spiritual things, and perhaps one of her most burning questions comes up, and in her excitement, she just wants an answer to the question. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt, right? Either way, it's not the issue. It's not what she needs to be focused on. It's not the problem that she has. It's not the thing that has her at that well at noon. It's not what makes her an untouchable. So Jesus artfully answers a question and brings it back to what she needs. And she needs freedom from her sin. She needs complete surrender. She needs true worship. Jesus says, listen, dear woman, the time is coming 
when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about worship. He continues in verse 23, but the time is coming indeed. It is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Man, Jesus is so slick, man. I just want to be like him. I don't mean slick as in cunning, but he's just so artful as he dispenses the word of God. And this woman, for whatever reason, creates this distraction. Jesus pushes through that and said, lady, let's get back to why I'm here. Let's get back to what we were talking about. Let's get back to your five husbands. Let's get back to the dude that you're laid up with today. Let's get back to your sinfulness. And since you want to talk about worship, let's talk about worship. He says, listen, God wants people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. By spirit, Jesus is mean with the very, just the core of who you are. The very core of who you are, dedicated in worship. If the core is dedicated, if the core of you is worshiping, then it doesn't matter where you're worshiping at. And I tell people all the time, listen, when, you know, I, tell, I encourage people to raise their hands and clap during worship. You know, more, I'm just trying to work on the core of you. If I can get you to worship God in spirit with, you, with your guts, with your soul, listen, your hands will get involved in it. Your mouth will open up and begin to sing. And sometimes you have to fake it until you make it. I like to see people worshiping. And I like to see people clapping. But listen, I want to I deal with the guts. I want to deal with the core of you. I've had the Lord working on my guts for the last, you know, 10 or so years. It's been painful, but the fruit of that is a life of worship. The fruit of that is I can't help to be someplace where they're singing and they're lifting up the name of Jesus, and I just can't help to get involved in it because the Lord's worked on my guts, my spirit. I'm worshiping him with my spirit, the very core, the very essence of who I am. In spirit, and Jesus says, also in truth, you got to deal with, you got you to bring the real you to worship. You got to bring the real you before the Lord. You got to let them deal with your junk. You got to stand undressed in the mirror that is God's word and, and deal with what you see. This is what true worship is. This is what true worship is a commitment with your, the core of who you are and dealing with the Lord in, in absolute truth. Dealing with whatever he shows you, dealing with whatever he finds. And when the Lord encounters this untouchable woman, he reaches out to her despite the social uh, norms, despite the taboos. He identifies himself to this woman and he identifies the thing that he comes to give her, the living water. And he proceeds to do what he does so well and he leans into that area of our life. Deals with the real Issues that we face. Her brokenness, her sinfulness. See, so many of us want to have these uh, encounters with unchurched people where we just want to hang out with them. We just want to both leave the encounter. That was a good, that was a good, that was a good time. Then we have a good time. They can really play checkers. Or she makes a mean casserole. And we haven't dealt with the issues. We haven't artfully put before them the mirror of God's word. So, see, have you considered this? Have you considered 
your brokenness? Have you considered why you can't keep a job? Have you considered why you're alone? Have you considered why you've got nobody to help you raise these children? Have you considered the core of your issues? Everybody's talking about, you know, I have, to, I have to deal with my haters. I have to dodge the haters. No, they have, you have to deal with you. If I can just get a better boss, if I can just get my boss to, to understand my worth and my value, no, God wants to deal with you. The Lord would just fix my husband and, you know, if he could just deal with my wife. The Lord wants to deal with you. And as his hands and feet, he's calling us to deal with the real issues, to talk about the real issues. This is how Jesus meets us where we are. What's the big picture? Verse 28 says, A woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the villages to see him. Here is good time Susie, right? The town outcast, heralding Jesus' presence in the town. And not only does she herald it, right? Everybody comes and they hear. I and mean, if you read a little bit down, Jesus was able to stay with them for a couple of days and they, and, they, and they came to know him. They came to know the Father. What's the big picture here? When Jesus meets us where, he, where we are, as he often does, as he masterfully does, good things happen. The best thing that can happen is salvation came to this woman. And not only salvation come to this woman, salvation came to the whole town. But that doesn't happen unless Jesus met her. It doesn't happen unless Jesus pressed past her untouchableness. It doesn't happen unless Jesus was able to identify himself to her and identify what she needed. It doesn't happen unless he dealt with her sin and her brokenness. It doesn't happen unless he spoke clearly to this woman that I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. And what does the Messiah, what does that statement mean? Basically, the statement means the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here for you, Samaritan woman. You, immoral woman. You, sinful woman. The kingdom is here for you. And we talked about the kingdom a lot. The kingdom is the realm or the sphere in which God is in control. And when we come into God's kingdom, we give him the right to call the shots. We move to the passenger seat, perhaps even to the back seat, and we let the Lord drive. And the message of the kingdom that John The message of the kingdom that Jesus preached was repent and believe in me. In other words, listen, turn away from your agenda. Turn away from your way of doing things. Turn away from all these learned behaviors that got you in the mess of the situation that you're in right now. And turn to me. The kingdom is here. It's broken in here and now. So this has major implications for the sinner. Major implications for the disengaged. That Jesus is searching for you. See, I'm not convinced anymore that people who are sitting in church are, are, are Christians. I'm, I don't make that assumption anymore. So I'm, I'm speaking to us all as if we're at a place where we need to make a decision today. Today is an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Jesus, in your hearing, is identifying himself 
as the Savior, as the Messiah. Today and in your heart, he's highlighting your brokenness, the distance between you and him. The question is, will you respond? Will you respond today? This also has major implication for those of us who are found, those of us who are believers, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. As his hands and feet, we need to do what he did. We need to say what he said. We need to go to where they are. We need to touch the untouchables. We need to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. And we need to talk straight talk. We need to deal with the issues that people deal with. This doesn't happen any other way. Do you want to be a church that reaches the unreached, that touches the untouchables? You want to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus in the marketplace of ideas where Christianity and Jesus is becoming increasingly less popular? Do you want to talk straight talk at the expense of being disinvited to the Christmas parties, to being scratched off somebody's Christmas list? Are you willing to deal with the real issues and talk straight talk? about the issues, about the sins that so easily disqualify us from being kingdom citizens. That's your decision to make. Since Jesus meets us where we are, I'm so glad that he met me and I've committed my life to meeting others at great cost. I hope you choose to do the same. Let me pray. Worship team, you can make your way up. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you didn't leave me where I was. I thank you so much, God, that you cared for me enough, you loved me enough to reach down to where I was and to find me. God, I give you all the credit for saving me. I give you all the credit for rearranging me. I give you all the credit, oh God, for putting me on the path that's headed towards you. And God, I submit my life to you to do whatever you want with me. And I know for a fact that you want me, you want us to go, Lord, and reach those that don't know you. To reach those, Lord, that are floundering and those that are lost and those that are broken and those that are hurting. You're calling us to reach them. You're calling us, Lord, to identify ourselves as belonging to you as an agent of yours. And you're calling us to deal with the issues, Lord. God, would you give us the strength and courage to do that? I know that's a tall order. But God, would you just begin to show us those people in our lives that need an encounter with you through us? God, would you meet each and every one of those people exactly where they are through us? And God, as we worship you in spirit, as we worship you in truth, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit that you would show us the real us as you show us the real you. May we just have a fantastic time worshiping you, Lord, and may you reveal the secrets of our hearts and help us to change, help us to grow, help us to continually have an encounter with you. We thank you for all these things in advance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.